With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. The way to do things is do them. Just try every permutation of opportunity. Do them. Don't commit to this definition of yourself any longer than a couple hours. And I never think I leave anything behind. You can always go back. If you don't commit to the definition of you, then you never leave anything. So, Jessica, I'm really bad at the beginnings, but I want to apologize to you first. So we did a podcast like a year ago, and then I kept telling you, oh, it's going to be up any day. Don't say hello yet. (laughs) And my computer, before I uploaded it to Dropbox or the cloud, this magical place, I, the computer got destroyed for various reasons I won't go into, and I lost your interview. So now I'm so glad we're here to do it again. Hello, Jessica Banks. Hello. So that was a good hello. And what I want to describe how we met. Okay. So we met at this party, and I remember I was already asleep, and someone called me up and said, you have to go to this party that's just two blocks away from where you are. John Levy, who's a mutual friend of ours, he wrote the 2 a.m. principle. Um, he would have these influencer parties where people wouldn't know who they were and he would invite them all in and cook a dinner and they'd have to figure out who they were or whatever. And I had missed the dinner already, but I went to the party afterwards. And John said to me, you have to meet my friend, Jessica. Because uh, I was telling him, I really want to interview comedians. And he said, oh, you meet my friend, Jessica, because uh, right, she used to right. work for one. And, but then while we were talking, you said to me something, which I then wrote about, and it was a hugely popular article, and I wanted to interview just about what we spoke about. But along the way, I just want to introduce you a little. You're Jessica Banks. You run a robotic furniture company. You studied at MIT's AI AI lab. You, before that, you worked for Al Franken, which we're going to have to get into that because now he uh, made a joke about running for president. And, but the main thing was you did, you said this thing, in order to get over your own shyness and nervousness when you were living in LA, you did a dare of the day. So what did you mean? So it seemed to me that, you know, I would always come in, in contact with these experiences where I felt like very reserved or nervous about it. And I thought, okay, like I what? have to like so, um, sorry if I interrupt a lot. No, by the way. no, I will interrupt you. It's my genetics, I think. Um what so, are you a Jew? Yes, no, exactly. I am too. So I can say I know, me too. <laughs> and and I speak a lot faster, right? Jews talk faster. Yeah. So you have to interrupt them. Just shut up already. But yeah, yeah. Um, plus, I have a bad memory, so I will um, forget what I mean if I don't interrupt you. Okay. Quick, quick question. That I have a bad memory too, but it only started after I turned forty. Do you think after forty, you kind of like it's more experience than it's more intuition than memory? I think it's a little bit more, but I also think that you just like more stuff is happening, and maybe we're attending to more things and so that it's more important we keep track of stuff and so we realize when we don't. So like maybe there's more clogging plus more prioritization. I I don't know. We'll get to that because you are an artificial intelligence expert and studied it. I forget, did you get a PhD, master's? I left right before my PhD. I got master's. 
um, and an engineer's degree. Okay, I left before my I was thrown out before my PhD in AI, so we could at least nice. converse about Perfect. it. But okay, otherwise today, we could not talk about it. What What were some of the um, weird experiences or uncomfortable experiences that led you to this day of the day? So often I would um, just be uncomfortable in front of people, right? Talking, having conversations, and I figured, well, maybe if I just make that thing very poignantly obvious, like an awkward, then I could get over it, right? So um, it's if it's even like talking to someone and ordering something at a cafe, so things would make me nervous. And like, like why would that make you nervous? I don't know because I'm weird, and I and how I'm would like, you turn so it into? So it was like tell a joke or say something in particular, or like um, actually I started doing it when I was at MIT, um, and I uh, so like I would do things like be nervous in front of when I would teach, and so I get up and wear one shoe. Right, as a dare of the day. And, and would so, they notice? Would the kids notice? Sometimes, but they don't really say anything, right? But the thing is, dare of the day is nice. So if I would dare myself to do something that if it suddenly occurred to me, you don't want to do this, I would say, I have to do this thing. I get this idea in my head and I'm like, okay, that's my dare. So I would dare myself to do it and I'd always win, right? You, you can't fail. So as long as you do the dare, even if catastrophic things happen, you still win that one little moment. Have, have okay, so there's lots of things to unpack in there. Um, first off, would you ever? So, so the whole idea is really what I thought fascinating about this was is I'm often awkward in many situations, and the idea of almost distancing myself from it's almost like this mandate from the 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 Justice League satellite or whatever. You have to do this dare of the day. But what if it's something you challenge yourself like, okay, I'm gonna hung, hug this homeless person and then you just decide at the last minute I'm not gonna do it. That's a fail. I mean those moments, you know, and I, maybe there's some part of me that sort of chooses ones that I also kind of know I can carry out. I mean I don't take off all my clothes on the subway, right? I've sold a scarf on a subway. Um was that so you would just go person to person? Yeah, well, there was someone selling it, and then I was like, I need to show him the better way to sell it. He kept lowering his price, and I felt like that's not good marketing, right? You're showing that you're not having valuable goods. So uh, I took it over for him and showed him in the next car, raise your price or like create some sense of scarcity. And then, um, I don't know, maybe it. Were you shy going for personal? I was so nervous, yes. But, you know, then I think there was also the sense, which is like that people maybe kind of understood what was happening. You know, it, you know, I mean, I was selling one scarf and it was a little weird out of context. But, and I sold the scarf, but, you know, who for knows? a high price? It was $4. Okay. Higher than he was asking in the it other was, car? It was higher. Yeah. So I remember when you told me this, um, two things. One is you refused to tell me an example, Dare. Um, but, Afterwards, I started doing a dare of the day, and it really does ha- give this incredibly freeing feeling. So, for instance, I think the next day I sat on Spring Street, just on the sidewalk, and just simply asked everybody passing by for money. By the way, it seems like it's interesting both dares here involve money because mm-hmm. that's yeah. something people are very uncomfortable about, I guess, and so it's a natural thing. M- money and touching are like right. uncomfortable yeah, yeah. things. But like, what are some other potential? Dares. Um, so first of all, we met because of the dare, though, right? So before, what was it? We didn't. We we forgot that we were on that line of thought. So when we first met, yeah, we well, we met because John introduced and did, us, and then, and but we were just talking about. But I think uh, you I, had something on your face. Yeah. So so. Oh yeah, that's the other thing. So I, I maybe I did have something on my face. By the way, that's the first time you told me that. But what you did was, I said, show me an example, and so you started like. 
almost as if you were pulling something you off my face. You had a fuzzy on you. Okay, so you started gra- <laughs> I didn't know that, but you started grabbing like as if you were like pulling some wisps of hair off my face and that you said that was like an example thing like you wouldn't normally go up to a person who you just met and and do that and that kind of breaks down barriers and it makes everybody feel quasi uncomfortable but then you've done it. Right. So, and you've broken some like weird fourth wall, right? That's in between yeah. you guys and then I don't know. It, I think it works really great socially, but it also helped me get more comfortable just in general in all kinds of situations because I knew that there were extremes I could go to and be super awkward and even then everything would be fine. So like what's another what's another situation where maybe somebody was super confident and you felt awkward and you wanted to get out of your comfort zone so you did one of these dares. I did I did dance on my friend was really, uh, they had a big birthday bash and, um, you know, everyone was dressed, the girls and women were wearing really pretty sexy dresses and things and I kind of don't dress that way, but, um, and so I- You were in a potato sack? I was in a potato sack at burlap, in a burlap, um, yeah, outfit and they, uh, and some of the girls were up on the table like dancing real sexy and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just- you know, you know when the dare comes to your head. So I was like, I need to get up on the table and I need to d- do the robot like dance. Uh-huh. And so I did that up there. And it was ridiculous, right? And everyone else was super sexy and party. And then I did the robot. And I'm not even a good robot. I'm kind of good. But um, <laughs> you practiced. I do. In the I, 80s. I, I have practiced, yes. <laughs> but, um, you know, those moments where it's really, you know, and out did that of character. F- make you feel free. Did that Free you up? Yeah. Did you enjoy the rest of that party? I mean, I don't even know if it's it's not so much about that moment. I think it's about in general that it frees you from un, from all the social constraints you think that you have. You know, there's there's ways that in every experience and in every interaction you can be super awkward, and even if you take it to the limit, you're going to be fine. And and again, it almost seems like permission, like because if you know, okay, I've done this dare of the day many times before, I'm going to do it in the future. It's almost like you're giving yourself permission that, okay, it's not going to be that bad for me to do something unusual here, as long as it's not evil to somebody. Right. You know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be to a person either, right? Like it could be just something that is uncomfortable for you that you makes you a little bit out of your comfort zone. Yes. I sort of feel like everyone's kind of trapped in their comfort zone, particularly in a place like Hollywood, say, where there's like these gods that walk the earth almost, these actors and actresses that everyone stays out of the way of. And then there's all their entourage of assistants and so on that have to be in their proper place. And so was it ever, and they're very extroverted and you're kind of introverted. So was there ever a way you kind of, how do you bridge that introversion gap when everybody else around you is extroverted? I mean, it, this is that's the technique is to to use this as a vehicle. I, once actually, I used to be Al Franken's assistant, as you mentioned, and so um, once we were in L.A. and we went to somewhere where he was performing, and um, the woman who was intro, you know about to introduce Al and was kind of prepping him said, you know, was talking to him, and then I was just standing there, and and no one had introduced me, so it was kind of a weird moment, and so I just said, hey, I'm I'm his signer. Right, like I'm going to do sign language, and it was so inappropriate and I kind of also weird for me to have done that in that moment. But Al laughed, and and so did it, she know sign language? Did she know you were no, doing it? She did. She she was like, okay, right, uh-huh. but clearly I wasn't, and I was sort of you know in that moment trying to make up for not being introduced, but also kind of a little angry I wasn't, and also trying you know just like screw it, you know. And that's funny too. So, like, how did you think of the idea to sort of insert your, instead of just saying, "Hey, I'm Jessica," which is what everybody else does. 
you s- said, "Hey, I'm his signer." I mean, I felt like I, you know, needed a function or something, and so, um, and but because Al also laughed at that moment, I felt, you know, I got a little more feedback from the world that it's great when you can go outside of your comfort zone or be some, do something a little unexpected. And do you think, in general, doing all of these has kind of expanded your repertoire of ways to get out of a comfort zone in different situations? Definitely, yes. So, like, let's say you're with a customer, you know. So, you, so as I mentioned, you you have a a company that sells this. We'll describe it in a little bit, but robotics-based furniture. I'm going to call it. Could there could be many descriptions, but yeah. so let's say you're in a in with a customer. Is there ever a way you kind of? I sort of feel like every meeting or every context has like a genre. This is the customer meeting. Here's the first customer meeting. And it has to fit the most of the rules of that genre, but then you have to kind of break out of it a little bit. Like, And you could do this dare of the day to do that. Like, What would you do to just smash up the comfort zone of that first customer meeting genre? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the first thing you could do, and again, so when it's more like in that experience, I, I don't intentionally try to smash it up. If I feel suddenly I get the idea in the brain. When I told you, I think I was like, you're going to know what to do. Right, like right? You, that's why you didn't give you know? me specifics. Yeah, I don't because want to tell you, you'll, 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 I would you'll know feel it, right. And then you did. The next day you're like, okay, yeah. I realize that I don't want to do this thing, I have to do it. And so it just sort of comes to me. you know. And it's so, I mean, there could be, if I'm with a customer, it could be that I'm not trying to sell them something or maybe you know, I'm trying to you know, get something from them or I, you know, I don't know. They're usually very specific though. So what, Like what's an example? Um, what's another one? What was I mean, an example where you tried not to sell something? Was there ever an example like that, or is that was just a possibility? Um, that could be your next meeting. Well, here's one where I actually did try. So there was, um, I went on this cruise ship that was about entrepreneurs and and business people, and uh, called Summit, and it was on this big cruise ship. And Barry Sternlicht, who has Starwood Capital, was speaking. Right. So my friend had wanted to go see this talk, but I wanted to go see other talk, and she convinced me. I said, "Fine, we're going to sit in the way back of this huge auditorium on this on this cruise ship, and we'll listen." Um, and I actually didn't realize it was Barry Sternlicht until he said his name. I'm like, oh no, I want to sell all my stuff to him to put in all kinds of hotels. And uh, so I was really nervous. And I'm like, what am I going to do in this situation to get up there? So I waited for the end of the talk. I'm I'm in my PJs because we had just done yoga and it was that kind of you know, frou frou sort of um, entrepreneur, you know, melding kind of thing. And um, so I run up, and when I get to the front. Because I had been in the way back, all of these guys were up there surrounding him on the stage. You know, tons of dudes, and then they were blocking off the stage because Martha Stewart was supposed to come next. So I said um, to one of the cruise ship guards, which is not really a guard, right? I mean, he was. Does he have a gun? He, no, I mean he like probably also was a waiter, but yeah. um, so uh, he was standing blocking. He said, "No more people on the stage," and I looked at him. I said, "There are ten dudes up there. There's no way you're not letting a woman up there." So he kind of he didn't even like move his feet. He just sort of leaned to the side, and I got up on the stage. And then when I got up there, you know, I felt like I'm this like struggling little fish. I'm going upstream. Then everyone said, "Everyone off the stage." You know, we have to clear it for Martha Stewart. And I'm like, "My God, I can't get a break here." So I just stood there, and I realized that they were. And this is where I started to do the dare because I didn't, I hadn't had a plan. So um, that they weren't looking at me trying to get me off the stage. And I realized they thought I was his assistant. Because huh. I was all, all probably only woman, and so I was like, "Fine, I'm his assistant." And so I just started being like, "Thank you, thank you." 
and whispering and, and try, pretending to write something. I don't even think I, you know, had anything. I was just kind of like looking at my hand, you know, and like whatever, no one cares. And so by the end, it was just the handler, me and Barry Sternlicht going backstage and going off. And um, they both thought that I should be there because they didn't know any better. And so then, and people will always assume they'll always assume the the truth. I think the brain is kind of wired to just assume, okay, this is a situation that's supposed to be happening. Yeah, or and I think that's even more. They're questioning themselves. Like I might be outside of some knowledge, and the other person has it. So. I'll defer to that, right? right. So you can kind of go with that often. So um, and then when as we're backstage, and I just I, then I admitted to everyone, I said, "Hey, I just need to talk to you about some furniture." <laughs> and, and he yeah. must have been impressed with your initiative there too. Maybe I mean he was like, "Let's walk and talk," and so we did. He introduced me to Martha Stewart. They decided, you know, figured out how they were going to get their lift and their helicopter back to the island. You know, things like that. So the dare of the day is not only good for just in general. In general self improvement about you know expanding your comfort zone, it can also be you know used to kind of rather than just saying please every step of the way, please can I stay, please can I get on the stage? It's kind of coming up with these uh, creative, innovative ways of moving forward, and you you exercise that muscle because this was not the first time you did it; you've been doing it all along. Mm-hmm. And so How- yeah, you get more fluent at knowing what the dare should be or even catering one or you know also acting faster so response time is a big deal right because you can if you start suddenly realize that oh no I don't want to do something if you wait too long you can miss an opportunity um you know your this, your own psychology will cause you to delay almost to undermine yourself it's so funny because and um, protect yourself do, do you know AJ Jacobs mm-hmm. so AJ and I challenged each other to what would be the equivalent of a dare? Except it wasn't a dare of the day; it was like a dare of the month. Yeah, which is what you're just saying. Like it was too long, and it was such an extreme dare. And I got really like personally like I I don't know how to do it or if I could do it. So to the point where I even had to talk to like my therapist about how I'm going to accomplish this dare that AJ and I have well, set ourselves. You, what, what was it? Can I can't I can't say because it's actually going to be on another okay. podcast, but. Uh, I'll tell I'll tell you afterwards. I'll get okay. your advice. But um, how did you start working for Al Franken? Because it seems like a pretty big leap to go. You were you've done you know working for Al Franken in Hollywood, and being at the MIT AI lab, and then having your own company. You've done all these different things. So how did you start working for Al Franken? And is he going to run for president? <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. Only because I don't know. Not because I'm not commenting in quotes. Um, so. Uh, I started working with Al because I first tried to interview for another job with another director who and producer who uh, I'm very good friends with, and he didn't hire me. So it was for a TV show. So I, I'd been working in entertainment. Maybe I need to back up. So I'd been working. Um, no, I'm backing up even more. When I got out of college, I thought I was going to go into the military to become an astronaut, and then realized that was a very bad idea. So well, so you know, I've had I've had three different astronauts on the podcast. Really? So and it's really hard to be an astronaut, and I I believe two of them went to MIT, but it's incredibly difficult. Yes. So and it's a bad idea for most people, but why was it a bad idea for you? Because the military is probably not the best environment, you know, social structure for me to uh-huh. thrive in. Uh, I you know, I and I had a liaison officer. I, it was a quarter of an inch too short. I stretched myself. I passed the height requirement. What about the eye requirement? Uh, great. So, um, which is a whole other story. So, um, and um, but that you know, and I was asking questions. I'm like, well, what you know? I, so I wanted to fly the shuttle, which meant I had to fly combat. 
So I was like, well, what if I have to bomb Israel or something I don't want to? And he's like, what are you talking about? You can't ask these questions. I'm like, you know, you can't like just like quit, right? Um, and so, yeah, and my questions were just completely it, naive and entitled, right? It reminds me of, um, you ever see the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney? No, I so don't. Sandra Bullock plays this, she, she plays this like reluctant astronaut. And Louis C.K. made this comment uh, the next day after he saw it. Oh, no, I think I did see that. Yeah, they're like sort of lost. Yeah, she's yeah, like lost someone floats, does someone float away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. George yeah. Clooney floats away. And so Louis C.K. is making this comment afterwards, uh, like, why was this is so unrealistic? Like, who is a reluctant astronaut? Like, because Sandra Bullock was like reluctant the entire time. Like, in the interview, it would have gone like this. Um, so do you want to be an astronaut? And she would have said, well, out. Yeah. Just get out. <laughs> like, you're not allowed to be reluctant about any of these things. Absolutely. Um, and so I was reluctant about the combat, right? And about flying combat and so, and the military. And so, and my mom said, Jess, you're a blonde haired, blue eyed, you know, Jewish girl from Wisconsin with her nose pierced, you're gonna hate it. You know, just and and I think she had a it was a cogent. But, cogent but why did you want to do it the fly combat way? Because you could have done it more the academic way as a researcher. Um I am an extremist. So you I've figure not, if you're gonna go on the space I, shuttle, yeah, you're flying I want, you're a control be in freak. Control. Yeah. Uh, and so then after I realized that I'm not gonna go into space, I really was ill prepared for terrestrial future. Like I'm like, what on earth am I gonna do on Earth? I had no, I really had no plan. There was no job yeah, on the planet yeah. for you. I was like, I was not thinking about that. And so um, I had done my undergraduate in physics and and also in creative writing. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll, I'll write. And then I thought, well, I was dating a comedian at the time. And uh, I'm like, I'll work for Comedy Central. So then I kind of got into, I got a you know entry-level position in Comedy Central. In New York? And, in or, New York, yeah. Okay. And uh, in HR and, you know, kind of stupid doing admin stuff. But I got to know the whole company. And from then, when I realized I didn't want to stay there, I was able to branch out in that comedy world um, through my connections at Comedy Central. And, you know, kind of led me down to talent management. We manage Louie um, I, I at think the though, agency. I think, though, there's something to unpack there, which is that people don't realize that there's not really there's there's not shortcuts, but there are back doors. So you wanted to get into entertainment, it would be it's an unlikely back door to get there through HR in a in a in a cubicle you worked yeah. I'm, I'm I guessing uh, in an office in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but that's how people do it. Like they go through back doors, and those are often the best shortcuts. Totally, yeah. You have to push on every panel and see what is a door, and then what you can open. And so that was really great. So I. And, but my only writing experience at Comedy Central was um, since we were in HR, like they gave everyone birthday gifts. And once uh, an HR was oversaw that part of it. So they decided to give this water bottle with the Comedy Central logo filled with Tootsie Rolls, right? And my boss at the time said, come up with the thing we're going to write on this um, water bottle. And I was like, holy crap, this is huge. Everyone in the company is going to get this. They're all going to read the thing I write. It has to be like quippy and and fun and on brand. And I was so nervous. And so that was my my big foray into that kind of. What'd you write? I said, um, "Happy birthday! Uh, I hope no one else got you this." All right. I no think one it's else still funny. Yeah, it's right? still funny. No yeah. one else got it because it's a Comedy Central thing. It's filled with tootsie rolls. It's a water bottle. It's, it was stupid. funny. Okay, thanks. So um, that was one of my, you know, and then after that I left Comedy Central and I worked for Three Arts Entertainment 
talent management. And when I left that, um, you know, a friend said, "Go, you know, go talk to this other guy, John Marcus, uh, amazing producer." And he, um, but he didn't hire me. And uh, he said, "But my partner in Why this show, hire you? he needed someone who is more experienced at, in show production, which mm-hmm. and I had never done any of that. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't even have a TV." I think that's part of it. So you worked at Comedy Central is no TV? It's correct, yes. Okay, uh, by the way, <laughs> just to say, uh, and sorry for interrupting again, but around, probably around the same time you were at Comedy Central, I was backdooring my way through HBO. I worked in the IT department at HBO, but was on the side pitching shows to them and even doing like a web, because I was in charge of their website. Yeah, yeah. I've got them to do a web series, and that's that was my that's little amazing. foray in there. So before the web, which is dating me, um, I actually, my friends were starting a browser or some like web something company, and I pitched to Comedy Central, you need to be on this thing called the internet, okay? And I wanted to run that whole department. I brought it to them. Like, I will take total credit for oh bringing God, the internet to Comedy I br- Central. I brought it to them. <laughs> So I'm, in 1995, I visited them, their head of IT, and I said, you need to be on the internet. I did that exact thing, and I was like, you have to do this thing. I think it's a good idea. And, and I'm like, then they hired somebody else, and I was beside myself, right? And at that, like, there's very few times where I, was, where I really feel like I'm on the cutting edge of something, and I would have, like, what I'm saying is, like, I change it. And probably no one remembers that I was pitching for that because I was lowly HR admin. Uh-huh. And I was like, you really need to do this. We had a meeting about it, and I brought my friends in, and then they hired someone to take it to the next level. Gosh, do you remember the name of the person they hired? I bet I know her. It was a guy, and he was tall and blonde and lanky. I did not know him then. And I want to say it was Scott, but I know I could find it. Like, And I could ask my friends who it was because he headed that whole thing. Because I knew the head of IT at Comedy Central, and who that's why that? I pitched her. I forget her name now. That's like really 22 funny. years ago. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our memories are going bad. There was another one guy called David something. He was in there too. Yeah, but this is a good conversation for later too. Um, so yeah, so I tried to bring them on the internet and then... So you knew the cutting edge, mm-hmm. and but you're in comedy, you love it, and you, 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 you start applying for jobs outside of Comedy Central. Mm-hmm. And then how did you end up with you know, managing artists? And, and, and then, help? yeah, well, my friend Larry Divney, who ended up to be president of Comedy Central, um, he said, well, go work for Three Arts Entertainment. Um, I know this guy, Dave Becky, who's an amazing talent manager. I knew Dave Becky at the it was time. It his birthday. I, I didn't know that. Well, I, I only knew him because I used to go to the Aspen Comedy Festival all the time, and he would set up interviews for me to do for HBO's website because he was representing all the yeah. comedians. Mm-hmm. So I was his assistant at um, Three Arts, but he would always go to LA. So it, it was only the two of us in the New York office at the time. So he would be in LA, and I would be handling New York when he would be there. He's, and he so, was huge then, but he's even larger now. He's like, I know. Uh, he's every, he's, he's a, amazing. He's the producer of every single sitcom right yeah. now, like he's yeah. the producer of Louie. I know. Right? So And so we managed Louie, we managed um, Mark Marin, we um David Tell, like, you know, Upright Citizens Brigade, um, Amy Poehler, Matt Besser, great, you know. Amy Poehler when she was just a member of the Upright Citizens yeah. Brigade. Yeah. Did you go to the Level Lounge on Monday nights? I ran it. Are I, you I, kidding me? I would go every oh Monday. Oh my God. I would go every Monday. And Mark Luna, Marin, and Lu- there was, was Luna before. Lounge, right? And yeah, then Luna it, it was Luna. Yeah. Yeah. No effing way. Yeah. Like I was I would, in the audience I was helping every day. book it. I mean, and I was Monday. helping make it. I was helping like run the whole thing. Yeah. That's right. insane. I didn't know you were there. Yeah, I was there. 
I didn't know you then. Uh, I didn't know you until 20 years later. Correct. That's correct. Um, and actually, at one of those nights where we switched lounges at some point, I remember. And so, but my friend, so I remember this very, very clearly. My friend Aaliyah, who is now a producer in LA, and came because I kind of yanked her with me when I went to go to do the show with Al Franken um, from New York, and she stayed. But she, I remember, had a cell phone, and I'm like, I'll meet you at Luna Lounge tonight. And she's like, call me at any time. I said, how am I going to call you? She said, I got this phone that I can take out in the world. And I'm like, that is so dumb. Okay, see, and then I, like, anything I did where I would have advanced my, you know, self in the internet, getting Comedy Central on the web. Right, you guys like, so I was like, I was like, cell phones are going to be stupid. Right, exactly. So I like, I, I always like balance out in terms of, um, so I was like, that's so dumb. Why would anyone want to talk to people when they're out and about, right? Um, and so I was like, whatever. And I actually had to use a payphone and find her. And she said, I'm over here to come find me. And then, and that was the first time I was like, wow, that was really convenient. You know, okay, I, I understand a cell phone. She was one of the first people I knew to have a cell phone. It was like around, like, I guess, 96, 97. And it was 96. to ha- exactly. And it was to help find her at Luna Lounge. And then there was like a competitive one. I forgot who set it up. There was like another lounge type com- com- alt comedy place set up. Around the same time, but like everybody was like showing up at these things. Like, yeah. <clears throat> uh, I don't know. Everybody, I, I'm just thinking of all the names that were there. Uh, uh, it's funny. Yeah. But and I was always scared to death because I I felt like I really wanted to be a stand-up comedian just like them. Like I love the whole subculture of it, mm-hmm. but I was just too terrified at the thought of it. Yeah. So so, but again, I think this is another lesson. Like somebody wrote to me today and said. I'm 18 years old. How can I start pursuing my passions in life? And A, you don't know yet what your passions in mm-hmm. life are going to be. B, there's no direct path. Like there are so many alternative paths and you're going to have so many alternative passions. You kind of have to be open to it's just like what you did on the stage. It's not like you can just make an appointment and get on the stage and talk to the guy. You have to kind of take the back door away every time. And a lot of that is again, I'll I'll kind of umbrella this with this dare of the day, being comfortable with stepping outside that comfort zone so you can do this. So you can be go from HR to pitching a TV show to working for Al Franken or whoever. Yeah, so, it's and also don't commit to this definition of yourself any longer than like a couple hours even. Yeah, you know? I mean a so, couple of hours. That's yeah, important. You know, and yeah, and I think that, that that really will help you be flexible and it helps you have less ego about it, you know? So I think there's a balance between the confidence and the ego. But when someone says, how do I pursue my passions? First, you're absolutely right. You don't really know your passions and you might not ever know them, even when you think you're, you know, like, but there's not one thing. Like, how do you grow up to do the one thing and find my thing? There's no one thing. There's, There's no one thing. And not only that, there's this idea of respecting the combination also. Like you said, you majored in physics and creative writing. So we'll, we'll, we're going to keep on going with Al Franken, but you mentioned how at first with <laughs> We're going to keep on going with the famous person, but you... <laughs> then we'll get back to you. No, but, but you, you start off going with physics down the astronaut route, like you had to be commander of the space shuttle. Then you, uh, good thing you didn't go and blow up during that. But then you uh, went to be HR at Comedy Central, but kind of engineered that into arts management and then um, 
uh, and you were running the Luna Lounge with the comedians, you got to know that whole subculture, then, and and we'll, we'll, we'll make the bridge into Al Franken. But then the later parts of your story, you kind of combined these all of these interests and in an interesting and innovative way. And I think people often say, well, no, I'm going to focus. Isn't focus the important thing? And focus is not that important. It's not as important as being creative and, and using all of your skills and combining them in a unique way. I mean, we're saying that because we're not focused people. <laughs> but I wonder, but, but I wonder like, like, okay, let's just take Louis C.K. as an example. He could have just said, I'm only a stand-up comedian. And he could have said, I'm going to just focus on that. Well, what did he do? He was also the head writer for three different uh, late night shows. He He's made like five different sitcoms. He, he He's made at least two movies that I know of and probably more. He made his own sitcom on the web. Uh, he's done lots of different, he's been an actor in serious movies. He's done lots of different things as opposed to focusing. That's true, but I would think that, you know, let's say the astronaut that did go probably focused, right? And so I think that both things have merit um, in different, you know, but there's still flexibility even when you're focused. You still be aware of what the rumble strips look like, right? Maybe maybe there's a compromise here, which is respect some sort of larger umbrella. Because, yeah. like, I'll, 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 the last astronaut that's been on this podcast, he couldn't get in for various reasons on the military side. Uh, including it took him a really long time to pass the eye test. So he went to MIT. Can you just memorize the chart? No, but what <laughs> he did was, was fascinating. And he's the only person I know to ever do this. He actually, for a year, did exercises every day to improve his vision. Yeah. And it worked. You can. Yoga for eyes. I have the book, my sister. Oh, yeah? So he did that and he really was focused. And he went from like, I don't know, 2060 to 2020. But... He then became an expert on robotic arms at MIT. He got a PhD. He could have been no, a professor. Yeah. And then he had to become an expert at all these athletic things that astronauts do. So you still have to kind of combine under an umbrella yeah. lots of different skill sets to be the best in the world at the intersection of those skill sets. Mm-hmm. So Even okay. to be crappy in the world, I think it's important <laughs> to combine all yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Else you're just the worst in the world yeah. Yeah. at the one thing you focused in when everybody else was passing you by because things change too. It's like you said, nobody had a cell phone when your career was getting started. If you just said, okay, well, I'm never going to get a cell phone, you have to kind of change into things that if you'd only focused on this is where my life's going to be from now on, you're going to miss all the things that change and all the ways that you change. Yeah. So, okay, Al Franken. Yeah, there was one other thing I was going to say about that. Oh, story Dave where, Becky, oh, what was your funniest Louis C.K. moment? Not that if uh, if you know if you can't reveal, that's okay too. My funniest Louis C.K. Louis C.K. moment. Yeah, because he's my favorite. I know, me too. Um, I can't remember, but I do remember there was one moment with Dave. So we, I mean, oh, there were some funny mon- moments with Polly Shore. So okay. we managed Polly Shore at the time too, and I would always have to call and see how his numbers were doing and things that I used to. Hate it because comedy clubs, and this is probably still the case. What do you mean by numbers? Like his movie numbers? Like how how was um, people like buying tickets, reservations, and things like that? Okay. How were they doing? So was he filling all the seats? You know, da da. And um, and I remember I, one day I was like, Dave was in L.A. And I was sitting at his desk with a big, you know, black leather swivel chair. And I had my feet up on the desk because I just thought everything was hilarious about my life. I was like, how am I here? This is so, you know, I didn't plan this. I'm not sure what I'm doing. And it's ridiculous that I'm actually, you know, figuring this stuff out. Um, and uh, I remember just like being in that soul jail, talking to Polly Shore about like how his numbers were going at some club that he was about to be performing at. Um, and uh, 
I was also like thinking it was so ridiculous that so many comedy clubs. I think it's now. I, I think it's five six five three. I'm gonna look at my phone, but I think that's how you spell joke. Hold on. On um, on uh, the phone. Yeah, and um, let's see. And but I was so I thought J five six. Five, three. I fucking remember that. Can I say that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, it's a I fucking remembered. So five six five three was how so many cl- comedy clubs ended, and it's because it spells joke. I so, didn't know that. <laughs> and that kind of just crawled its way into my brain and probably knocked out like an equation. Anyway, so that little memory. Um, so uh, what? Yeah, I'm gonna anyway. quiz people on that now. That's a good. Like, how do you spell joke on a on a phone? Yeah, yeah. Ask funny people that, right? All right. Um, so I, what were we asking? So Pauly Shore, you're on the phone, going over his numbers, club. Yeah, and I just thought, I remember thinking, like, I'm ridiculous. This but, is ridiculous. But again, to, to unpack that, there's a, a concept I call ready, fire, aim, where you obviously know what you're ready for, or sort of, like mm-hmm. you want to do something, you wanted to work for Dave Becky and work in the comedy space, but too many people spend a lot of time aiming. Like too many people might think, oh, well, I've got to write a screenplay or I have to spend uh, five years doing stand-up before these guys will even look at me or I have to um, be on the other side of Comedy Central instead of the HR side. Mm-hmm. And too many people stop themselves thinking that they've got all these hurdles they have to jump over first when in fact you can just fire and you now you're totally at the main desk uh, talking to Paulie Shore and then who knows where that leads because you're going to fire again yeah. in the next stage. I want to use like a different because all of it in this political climate, fire first is not the best way to talk about it, but there is, you know, something first. I do and you know, there's a there's a better word I want to use, but I totally agree. Like yeah. to fire first. All right. Challenge for the audience. Just yeah. tweet us out what is better, better than ready, fire, aim. What's your Twitter handle? <laughs> um Rock Paper Robot or Jessica Banks. I don't even think I know. Uh, you're, I see you're a Luddite still. You, you go back and forth. Rock, paper, robot is a good one. Rock, paper, robot, at rock, paper, robot on yeah. Twitter or Instagram mm-hmm. or whatever. Tell but so, so now, why didn't you just stay with uh, Dave Becky? He was managing all these comedians, starting all these shows. Why did you go to, why did you go to Al Franken? Well, I quit with Dave because also at the time, so, and it was funny because I would, I would do a lot of talent scouting too, and people knew I was at Three Arts, right? And so I a lot of times people would pander to me a little bit when they're on stage, and I hated that feeling. I had a napkin always, and I would write. It would look like I was taking notes, but I would um, have this, and I can't totally remember it, but this little rubric for when I would get up and go. If they made a toilet seat up joke, if it was a guy or a girl made that. That was, um, that was a no-go. That was like, I immediately get up and leave. Right, okay. I remember that one, but there was that's just too easy. Yeah, it was like, okay. what, how, you know, there's nothing of, uh, it's no innovation Even though there. the very first recorded historical joke that they've discovered, like archaeologists have discovered, is a guy joking about his wife farting. That's the first archaeological joke. What are you are you serious? Yeah. What um where? And what I, culture? I, I don't know, but um Stephen Dubner, who's been on the podcast, he wrote Freakonomics, he's the one who told me. So he like studied this. But I heard there was like this it was crazy like Babylonian hieroglyphic thing. joke. I think that was it. I'm making that up. Are you serious? Yeah, I think they saw this on a wall because nobody told, nobody recorded this. They saw this on a cave wall, and they just assumed it was a joke. Yeah, it was like a woman sitting on a king's lap and making a noise. Really? Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. So so okay. okay. So you, well, you that put, is hilarious. Put those jokes out. Um, right. So that aside, I was like, no. And so there, and so I would write, and I would if they hit like three parameters or or like the big one. What was, I was another one? So I know to I avoid. I can't this. even remember them. But I had them and I would write on them and I thought, okay, they're thinking that I'm taking notes and that's fine. And then I would just go if they like kind of hit it. And so um, 
so I would leave. So, um, but I also got tired of hearing, and I kind of think at the time, and maybe even still now, think I'm funny in a way. So I um, was thinking often that I was funnier than a lot of the talent that I was seeing, and I got tired of that. So I ended up wanting to move on. But isn't that going to be just the nature of the beast? Because uh, if you're a talent scout or if you're, let's say, a book editor, one out of a hundred things will be what you want. So yes. most of the people will be, and you'll also have, because you've seen so much, you're going to have a high sense of taste. So you're just going to, in general, see a lot of bad things. And if you're like Dave, for instance, and you have like a very acute sense of what is, you know, culturally, socially, psychologically humorous, it means you're good at that thing, right? So just naturally. So sometimes you, and he is funny, right? He's a hilarious person. So he is good at detecting humor and understanding what will work. Um, and you know, there there was such a difference, like pe- there was such a difference between the guys who were like number one and everybody else. Because I remember- um, I'm gonna text him right now while we're talking. All right, he, he won't remember me because this is like, okay. but Aspen Comedy Festival, I remember one time I interviewed Chris Rock. We we um, managed. I, I did the website for the Chris Rock show. No. Yes, and I did the that website is for. I did the I website for Mr. Show, Bob Odenkirk you, and David Cross. It's my favorite show. I and loved I interviewed it. Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. At they the came Comedy always Festival. to Luna, right? They were. Yeah, uh, David yeah, Cross at David least Cross. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were so funny at when I was interviewing them. This tells you how long I've been doing interviews. So they this were, is by the way I'm doing a dare right now by texting on. All right, good. So, but I I will tell you, you won't remember me, even though we were working in that circle. But uh, I was interviewing David Cross and Bob Odenkirk, who is now, of course, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Oh my gosh. And they were so funny the way they were riffing off of each other, which just goes to show you how in person humor is much different than YouTube humor. Mm -hmm. They were so funny that. I was hurting so bad I had to leave the room. Like my stomach was hurting. I was laughing so much. Like the, the best guys in person were just out of control. I agree. So, and it's it's funny too because I went to school and he's been on this podcast. I went to elementary school with Jim Norton and uh he we always knew he was very funny and now of course he's famous mm-hmm. comedian, but there was uh there's always a difference I feel, but and he's he's still top tier, but even though he was number one by far in our little school, he's among a big group of comedians who are funny in the professional world. Mm-hmm. Like it's really hard to kind of be number one, to be like David Cross or Louis C.K. Yeah, or yeah. someone like that, or Amy Schumer or whoever. Right, yeah. And it also does, I see when breaks happen for people, like when sort of a momentum or there is a tipping point in a career. Like what's often, an example? Um, I mean, I think like Louis hit this, you know, in the last couple of years with, with his show, show, right? And maybe some of his uh, specials right before the show. I can't remember which came first. David wrote back, be nice. <laughs> nice. So this way, so that's a clever way of saying, so he, so he wrote back, be nice. That's a clever way of him not knowing who I am at all, but just saying something that could fit the situation. Good job. Pivot. And dare of the day. Obfuscate, right. <laughs> Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. So, okay, you were a talent scout. You were disappointed. You felt you could be funnier. Al Franken. Because I was still kind of, you know, didn't think that I, 
I wasn't really there to be there, right? I had got a new job and I wasn't trying to just start to do comedy, you know, and I, I think I was just ready to move on, essentially. And then, um, so I think, I can't remember who introduced me. I think Dave might have introduced me to, to um, John Marcus and then John didn't hire me, but we got along really well. And John Marcus said, I'm doing this show because it was for a show that Al and John did together that was on called Late Line for NBC, I hope. Um, and uh, so... You know, John said, I need someone who's done production and, and admin for that and knows how to run a show before, and I had no idea. So he said, but talk to Al. He needs an assistant, and you seem really smart. And I thought he was blowing smoke up my ass. You know, I was like, thanks, whatever, but no thanks. But then he called me and said, okay, go. You, you know, Al, and he introduced me to Al. And now I will, I'm going to be really honest here, is that I didn't know who Al Franken was when when John told me well, that. Well, because you didn't have a TV and you'd it's only true. been on Saturday Night Live at that point. It's, yeah. And so I and you know did other kind of com- comedy, which I hadn't, I just didn't know. And I, I also am kind of bad with names and cultural references. Like he's so not I'm a stand-up of, comedy guy. I was outside of that. And so, um, and I went home and I was like, I'm going to go interview with Al Franken. And my parents were really excited. And I was like, okay. And then I got to Al's house and I was like, that's, you know, the, the thing he did on Comedy Central was... Um, I'm good enough. I'm sorry, you know, Stuart. Oh Small, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuart Smalley, and I sat down. I think that's Stuart. You know, like when I was sitting in his house, and then got the job, and he and you know, I was his assistant, and then we did a show out in L.A. and uh, yeah, and then when I was actually out in L.A., I saw a documentary called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control by Errol Morris. Ever seen it? Uh, I haven't, but um, and who just recommended it? Uh, Morgan Spurlock. Says that's like his favorite documentary. Okay, that I, and then Hoop Dreams was number two. I loved it. So I saw this movie on a whim out in in L.A. when I was working out there, and it's about a naked mole rat specialist, a lion train, like tamer trainer for circus things like this, um, a topiarist who they cut trees into shapes, and a roboticist, and they all go through this. Um, you know, it's just very thematic. Why do they throw all of them together? Like it's a very diverse group that have different takes on you know similar subjects. You know what is the meaning of life and what is it? You know what is kinds of beauty things like this. And so how do they make a story out of that though? So and there's a there's background to that because I think the first and I might be making this up. So I just want to just say that from the beginning. But I feel like I've heard the story where the first person who started to do this, um, where he I think maybe Errol had a hard time putting it together. We should fact check this. Also, add I'm going to get him on this podcast and I'll ask yeah, him. Can you call him right now? Um, I, my phone's dead. I'll say I would do the dare of the day. Um, so, um, so, and then they hired someone else, a woman, to come in and and really um, edit and and fix it. And I think she might have passed away um, at some point, but I think that it really came together from her efforts. And, and I would have to say, even if the, all of that is not true. What the end result is is a wonderful, um, like paralleled story of many different perspectives and and lifestyles. Ah, I'm gonna have to see it. So, yeah. what's it called again? Fast, cheap, and out of control. By Errol Morris. Yes. So in this, there was a, ro- a roboticist. Okay, and the roboticist was Rodney Brooks from MIT. Now, because I'm bad at names and everything, I didn't really remember this. But- okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna interrupt you just one second. So in 19 19- 89, I was um, an undergrad majoring in computer science and deciding which graduate school to go to for computer science. And Ronnie Brooks came to speak to my class. 
And I remember he kind of totally, you know, I was a a kid who had grown up on kind of the science fiction version Mm -hmm. of what a robot was. And he totally changed my impression of what robotics is. It's this, this, like, and computer science then kind of respected the fact that you could find, you could discover small things, lots of small things, and that's how you can learn, as opposed to suddenly being fed the encyclopedia and now you're alive. Like, and so, so just by, uh, as, uh, Background, he like a bottom uh, up approach to he, yeah. He had this bottom up approach, like like, and and a way to understand it is he's kind of the 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 inventor, I think, of the Roomba, right? Like the vacuum cleaner that just bumps into walls until it figures out what the room looks like. But a lot of people interpret that as smart, right? But it has a controlled algorithm with heuristics, right? So well, well everybody says, and I think uh, Kevin Kelly says this: AI seems magical until the day after it's done, and then it's just like statistics. Yeah, I think even. They call that the AI effect or something, yeah. where it's magical until someone, until it becomes known, and then people just assume it's just computation, and so it no longer, you know, the more um, important AI becomes, the less conspicuous it actually. Well, I think people conflate intelligence with consciousness. And, I mean, and- yes, and t- these these people conflate these so much, and uh, even the notion of what is intelligence is. Arbitrary, right, and hard for people to grasp, right. right. Like so, a computer at the time that a computer was able, for instance, to uh, beat the world chess champion, it wasn't able to recognize a face, exactly. And now, of course, it can recognize faces better than any human can, and we just rec- realize that it's just sophisticated statistics. And so we think, well, what's the next thing? It's not really conscious yet. Or if someone is a is a chess player and they can beat everyone all the time, they're brilliant. And if the computer does it, it's pretty bright. You right, know? or so it's, it's just a computer, it's just yeah. a box, it's, and it's just that's just rule following and and you know brute force computation. Yeah. Um, but, Which, by the way, again, um, chess, so, and I believe humans are too. I mean, I'm a total reductionist, but uh, uh, humans are what? Pretty much brute force, like rule following, like how we work. Uh, yeah, well, well, it's interesting because with chess. Uh, what they realized to make the first. I feel like we need a whiteboard of all the things we have to go back. <laughs> no, that's okay. Well, okay. Well, uh, we'll keep unpacking. Okay. I, I keep track. This is one area where my memory's halfway okay. decent. But with chess, the big insight they had because I went to Carnegie Mellon for grad school, so my office mate made what was then called Deep Thought, and then IBM bought it and it was called Deep Blue. Yeah. And they would train it by having it play me all the time, and because uh, I was the only. Let's say master level players left in the school. The other one had graduated, and um, so that's what I think. That's the only reason why I got accepted to grad school and why I was specifically put in this office. And but what what the insight they had was is that this is not a software problem. We're going to make this a hardware problem, and they just made it as fast and stupid as possible. And that's what beat the world chess champion. They took out all the learning part and just made it brute force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So anyway, there's a roboticist in the that documentary. That becomes a hardware problem. So yeah. can we just completely do this by the speed of everything that we can? Yeah. And I feel Rodney. That was Rodney Brooks' insight on robotics. So, but yeah, he was a roboticist in. He was in this movie, and so when I went to see the movie, I was like, "Great!" Like, and there was a girl in the movie too, and she was interacting with the robot. I'm like, "There's a girl in there. I could be a girl in like robots too, right? I could do that." And robotics, robotics team like physics and sculpture, which I had done physics undergrad. And I did a lot of art stuff, and so I'm like, "This is perfect." And I went back and I applied to MIT. And um, so you were working for Al Franken as an assistant yeah. in Hollywood. You had been, you had gone from a. a HR and Comedy Central to working for you know a big co- comedian manager to being like a talent scout to working in 
LA for Al Franken, very funny guy. You had like a career path, but you're going to go apply to be a roboticist at MIT across the country. Well, I thought then, so I was only visiting at LA because we did the show out there. So I was still in New York. I had, you know, Craigslisted it out at the time. So, um, and I saw this movie and I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a roboticist, you know? And so I came back, I applied to MIT when we got back from the show. And when I was on the website applying, I read, because I had totally forgotten, Rod Brooks just in Errol Morris's movie. And I was like, what a coincidence. You know, I thought MIT because I just came, I was like, what's the best place I can go? I'm going to pick that and then I'm going to apply. Nowhere else. And Carnegie Mellon had a good robotics uh, yes, department. They did, yes, and that is totally true. And then, but again, I like knew MIT. I just went for it, right? Um, and so, uh, and my parents, they were like, "Just don't put all your eggs in one basket." You know, you're, you know, MIT is a really tough place to get into. I remember I was typing it on this like thing. I act like a sort of a typewriter, you know, electric typewriter I had gotten for my bat mitzvah. I think I typed out my application to what MIT. What the hell? You didn't have. A word processor? It, no, it was, it was a word processor. That's what it was. I didn't I just forget. It wasn't like a computer though. It wasn't like no, a it Mac? didn't have a screen. Not then. Huh. We didn't. I, mean, I didn't. No. Okay. Yes, I realized I I did not have a laptop. Okay, so I did it on there, um, and I sent off this pack of you know stuff to MIT, and then a couple months later, I got a call uh, that said, "Congratulations, Rod Brooks wants you to be in his lab." Wow, and that's and, you know I want to say just. Because I know they had like a three percent acceptance rate. That like you kind of had to know. A, you had to know how to program. Did you know how to program a computer? No. And you had to have like great references. Like it was really hard for me to get into graduate Al school. Al gave me a. Al gave me a. Oh, you know, recommendation. So that's so again. What an amazing backdoor! If Al Franken can give <laughs> so you a my, reference, imagine I was an astronaut now and then ended up in space, and I'd be like, so I started off an entry level position at Comedy Central. <laughs> yeah, that would be, but it's almost equivalent. Like you got into basically MIT's AI lab or robotics lab, not only because of a passion for it, which you obviously had, and you and you were able to address the fact that you were aware of Rodney Brooks' work, but you you kind of didn't have some basic hurdles that an MIT somebody accepted to MIT, which was the number one computer science graduate school in the country. You didn't have some what I would consider extremely basic hurdles, but you did have. Huge back doors in the back doorway of MIT. You saw a documentary, and you were Al Franken's yeah. assistant. And it turns out then, when I got there, the girl in the movie, Cynthia Brazil, ended up to be my office mate. That's incredible. So, did you ever think to yourself though, like this is ridiculous? I can't. I need to at least take like a programming class at, at NYU or something to I get. I sat ready. in there. Yeah, I okay. sat in on a pro, and I okay. made friends with it because I'm like, I don't want to pay for this. I'm. I can't. I also have a job. You know, can I just come to the class and sit in? And I made friends. I can't. I totally had forgotten this um, with the professor, and I sat in on a programming class at nights at NYU. So okay. So 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 again. I think this is so important. People realize, well, I can't get into MIT. I, I'm an accountant at Procter and Gamble. There's no way it's going to happen. There's there's ways to to do things like you just, the, the world. The way not, to do things is do them, right? right. Like that's just, a good you know. point. <laughs> like you have to do it. Yeah, just try all the kinds of you know every permutation of of opportunity. Do them. Yeah, and and like let's say. Let's say you hadn't gotten into MIT, you probably would have gone on to maybe this bigger career in comedy or found some, maybe you'd be a topiatrist or make cheap topiarist. That's probably not how you say it. So, okay, so you go to MIT, 
you you study under Rod Brooks, mm-hmm. who went on. I think he also started the company iRobot, right? He did. It's a public company. Oh, cool! I'm glad you brought it up because Eve, every day, okay, I'm gonna just look at this pen I carry around with me. Okay, are you ready? Okay, so you're showing me a pen. It doesn't sure. look like a pen, by the way. But it does say iRobot on okay. it, right? I've had this in my bag or on my person for years because of this. Wow. So the pen <laughs> hit a button, the and pen opened up. And it's this- a transformer pen, and it doesn't even work as a pen anymore, but I love the motion so much that I just keep it in my bag to remind me of mechanisms that make me feel good. Well, and I think also, like that does look pretty just looking at it. You can do that over and over right? again. It so people forget. Good. People forget that with technology. Yeah, people forget that with technology. There's an element of design because there's got to be usability. And Things this, have to be have to look good, feel good. Yes, and so um, I want this. Can I get one of these? <laughs> You can get one of these. Do you want this one? I don't want if that one. If people want th- the things I have more than I feel like I want them, I give it to them. No, I, I, I would never want that more than than enough to you're gonna take it, it from you. Right? I'll lose it yeah, or give okay. it away. Okay, I'm gonna give it. Um, so wait, you just had a great point, or I was gonna, I was gonna have a great point. Well, if you hadn't gotten into MIT, which was distinctly possible because you were totally unqualified for it, uh, what else would you have done? I don't know. <laughs> All right, well, that's an important thing too, to, to just kind of pursue the things you're interested in right now, not have like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. If you know that if you're going to be a passionate, interested, hardworking person, which obviously you had been to this point, you're going to just keep doing things. Mm-hmm. Doing. Doing. And so you arrive at MIT and you become a roboticist. You're, you become a robotics expert. Yeah, and I remember when I first got in, like just by getting into MIT, I thought suddenly I was smart just because I got in. Which is true. By the way, no, it's not actually true. So, like, I um, and like within a month or two of being there, right? I was like, yeah, I'm at MIT. Like having this weird ego transition, which would soon be totally demolished. Uh, but um, I remember my mom. We were sitting around the table. I went home for some holiday, and my mom dropped the the clicker for the TV in her soda. Okay, and I was like, no problem. I got this. Like, You're I'll a roboticist. Totally, yeah, I go to MIT. I'm gonna fix this. Utterly broke it. Okay. And I really was like, oh, I forgot. Like, you have to learn stuff about the things that you're trying to do in order to be good at them. But it's, it's scary. Like, so, so again, I went to, uh, not number one, which was MIT, but maybe it was like number three. Like, let's say there was MIT, Stanford, and then Carnegie Mellon for computer science. And I was just looking around at the other classmates. I was so stupid compared to. I was so. Okay, but I was thrown out. You at least got a master's degree or or two out of it. I mean, I was like, it was clear I wasn't going to probably get my PhD. I just didn't have it in me at the time, and I don't think that I was smart enough even to do it. And so, but if you could get the master's degree, you could get the PhD. Yeah. But I mean, there was other things. They know you're learning, right? And that the goal is the PhD. So part of that is a slippery slope, right? I mean, and I could, you know, pass tests and and things like that. And but um, but you had to like sit there and build robots I in the lab learn. too. And, and so actually, so when I was at MIT, a couple things happened. One, I felt like I learned how to use my hands for the first time, for real, because I learned how to build stuff. And as a as a young girl, you know, I. I didn't do a lot of building, you know, my my all my colleagues, most of my colleagues were were male at MIT and they had grown up building skateboard ramps and breaking their arms and I was basically trying to feather Barbie's hair. You know, that was the extent of my physical, you know, 
which would work really well with daring, ex machina right? you know if you, <laughs> exactly. when the female robots happen <laughs> and barbie's hair does not at least then it did not feather because mm-hmm. the plastic does not act the same way as normal hair but anyway um i did not know that so it's true <laughs> um so i you know i was really really i had this huge um, kind of leap into feeling comfortable making things and using these huge, you know, mills and lathes that were way bigger than I was and loud and sharp. And did, did you have to get comfortable? Because this was a hard thing for me in graduate school. Uh, did you have to get comfortable saying, "I don't know this"? Can you explain it to me? I can't fucking believe you just said that. So for two years, I did not say that because it's a instead, hard skill. People in, don't realize. Instead, what I did was I wrote down everything that I didn't understand in a conversation and went home and Googled. Okay, oh. after about two years, I don't know what it was, and I can't like I I kind of remember. I don't remember what it was about, but I remember who I was standing with, and um, I actually said, "I don't know what you mean." And the person told me, and something clicked in that moment where this I was like, like a "Magic power." I was now. like. This is the question, right? And I was like, how efficient is this? I get to just basically have the person, I don't have to go home and Google that. They just told me. And after that, it was like a re, seriously, a rebirth of wonder of like, I don't know anything. And every, I'm going to ask everyone, even when I did know something, I would be like, I don't know what you mean. You know, I think that technique re- works really well. And I thought, and there's variations on it too. There's the, listen, back up for a second. Pretend I'm really stupid mm-hmm. and just explain to me like you would explain to a, a little mm-hmm. child, and I find that works really well too. Yeah, because then, but then you're being humble with, but also putting a little distance between yourself and your ignorance. Because it's right, like pretend I'm a little yes, child. Imagine I'm playing a role here. Yeah, and then yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, and I really found that that was that was just it opened up everything to me, and I realized that like this is how to really go about being here. Right is to to embrace everything I don't know, and even when you when I did know, bring in what you know, like ask more. What say I don't know? Yeah, just being really upfront about it and being always honest. know, right? And always be you know, kind of let someone tell you their their perspective, or you know, maybe they add knowledge or things like this, and so that really helped for the rest. And I and I wish it had happened sooner. So so by the time though you get through first off did you ever regret leaving behind the comedy scene for the robotics scene No and I never think I leave anything behind you can always go back right. like so that's another thing that's when if you don't commit to the of definition of you then you never leave anything you can all you know you're just kind of in a different thing Right so if you don't have like a comma like if yeah. you're not Jessica Banks roboticist or Jessica Whatever. Banks entrepreneur yeah. you could just you could change your comma any yeah. day Right so, um, so basically, uh, you're, you're at school for a couple of years, and you become a lot of a, years. a professional roboticist. Mm-hmm. And then what? And then um, I got hot. So uh, we were in a Frank Gehry building. So during the time that I was there, we changed where our offices were from this older building on campus to a new Frank Gehry building. And at one point, Frank Gehry came through. Um, the famous with architect, novel, yes, just a with background. No, yes. He did uh, the Global Building in Venice. He, um, what other building? He did a, a building here in New York that looks uh, all. Like waves and yeah. on the um, West like Side Highway. Of, it's the. Um, the IACI the, building. I, yes, yeah. Yeah. So um, basically, so he came through to see the building and how we were all staying in there. And, and they were working on a new project, his colleague and. Um, he was with his colleague, and you know they needed some roboticists. And my and Rod Brooks let me and a friend go. My friend, who just I think 
he ended up his company got bought by Google, you know, Mecca Robotics, and um, you know was one their head roboticist, you know, over there. So, 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 so this is probably the first time an architect goes to MIT saying, "Hey, do you have some spare roboticists you can lend could us?" Could have been, you know. So, and Rod said, "Go ahead if you want to work on this project." You, um, my, you know, Aaron and myself, we went to go uh, for the summer to New York and worked with. Frank Gary and uh, Frank was in California, but we worked out of another office in uh, our now office. What did it, what did an architect need uh, a roboticist for? So they were working on a project for um, a casino and hotel thing that was going to be in Sentosa, Singapore, and uh, they wanted to do something called a robotanical garden. So they wanted to show that there would be these robots in the gardens. And parts of the gar- gardens would be automated and mechanized and moving, and that people could interact with these kind of, you know, creatures. And so, did, did the um, did the things in the garden have awareness of the humans around them? Were there like radar in the we, flowers? You know, it, basically, this was the RFP, right? Mm-hmm. So they were just kind of trying to think how much background can they get. Really, mm-hmm. we didn't have to work out a lot of the logistics, which were are a lot harder, right? Um, and so we were trying to help advise on whether or not. That kind of interaction would be okay with just general people all the way all the time coming in and you know, um, and you know what kind of uh, feedback loops there would have to be and in order to be able to interact with people at close distances, especially if these were very big creatures, um, things like that. So and we were designing them. So um, was he a nice guy to work Frank with? Frank Gary, yeah, amazing. If, if you told him something's amazing. impossible, would he say okay or would he push or? I don't think we ever said. I mean, we I never say that. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I can tell. <laughs> um, but um, uh, he it was totally open and encouraging and supportive and bright eyed. Yeah, he's amazing. Uh, so then, yeah, and it, they didn't win the RFP, unfortunately. So, so there, there's get, a weird series of events. I want, I want to use this as a moment to recap. So, so you're going from uh, not being rejected as an astronaut to HR to comedy. Various. I wasn't rejected. You're, I rejected it. You rejected being an, you rejected <laughs> being a combat veteran in Israel. Somehow, somehow the U.S. was going to invade Israel in your imagination, and you wouldn't be able to be the commander of the space and I shuttle. Wouldn't be able to so that's it. why you're not an astronaut today. So you went from that to all the this kind of circuitous route to. Being a roboticist, and eventually we're going to get into your other. Your, I don't your, support all of Israel's policies, just as an aside. Okay. <laughs> all right. So we won't make this a political Wait. argument. We could. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what side I am on there, but um, but I think it's an interesting thing that uh, I, all this idea of I didn't realize it at the time when you first told me about Dare of the Day, but it's all related to you just kind of saying nothing's. Nothing's impossible in terms of your career and then your your success in each area. Like you went from uh, being in HR, then suddenly you're working for the best, you know, kind of agent or manager in the in the business. Dave Becky, I don't know if you call him an agent or a manager. Mm-hmm. Then Al Franken, then the best roboticist in the world. Then you're an arch- working for the architect Frank Gehry, the be- the most. Well-known architect, living architect right now, and is he alive? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, uh, then what? What's next? 
Because um, I know where we end up. You're running a company right now doing robotics furniture. We haven't even right gotten now. to the furniture part we yet. We haven't. We haven't done that. Um, but I think maybe the Frank Gehry part get, got, gets you into design a little bit. I mean, it got me more into it. I think my dad is an industrial designer. Um, he was manager of industrial design at GE for GE Medical for for many, many years, 25 years, I think. And uh you know, so I think genetically I have some of that going on. Plus, I probably smelled so many markers when I was younger that it, you know maybe it did something to my brain also, because um, he always had these huge. I love the those, those old magic really, markers. Oh yeah, yeah. But but wait, at any point during this, <clears throat> I mean, did you ever get like depressed? I'm always depressed. So what would you? <laughs> but I don't think it was because of these things. I think it's my nature. But um, yeah, I like you know I'm. Of course. <laughs> so, so, but like, it doesn't seem like in a career way. Like, you kind of like, you kind of like let stuff slide in a career way. I think in some ways that's very true. Like, I mean, you wouldn't get anxious about it. I don't, yeah, no. I get anxious about like the success of my company now and, and because I feel that I have mouths to feed. But I, um, you know, I think there's a weird thing I do, which is I, distance myself a little bit from all the reality that happens. It's just like, you know, these are things that are happening and I'm also happening in parallel with all these things. But did you have some kind of inner confidence that you can always sort of have faith in that, okay, I'm going to do this and if it doesn't work, something else will happen? I want to be able to say yes to that and I I don't think it feels, it doesn't feel like inner confidence. And I also think when I go back and, you know, I, I read this wig, the definition wig historian. You know, putting things to um, that happened in the past that making them seem like they linearly were, you know, predestined to some future that we have arrived at. Like I think that happens often when people look back at their lives and they want to rationalize choices or um, things that happened to them into a sort of a logic. And I'm not sure that actually is. That's really what happened. You know, I wandered and meandered and fell into things and, you know, tried stuff and kind of went with the moment a lot yeah, of times. Because- but it wasn't always me being like, I wasn't trying to do. Necessarily, each thing, but but I think there 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 also is an element of trusting your gut. Like you saw this documentary, and something like lit up inside you when you saw the roboticist. So it's sort of like you recognize the difference between something that really lights you on fire to uh, I'm going to have to deal with another, you know, this or that. So so. Okay, so Frank Gehry, and then did you go go back to MIT to finish degrees, or? I then after that summer where we spent working, I I thought you know I should stop, and I told Rod, he's like, yeah, I agree, you should. You really? Should, yeah. Why? Um, was that an insult? No, it was an honesty. Okay. You know, like I, you know, if it's an insult if I have an ego, um, but if I think it's you know it's. Supportive. I mean, you know, basically, I wasn't doing the best job. I was really more interested in doing tech art back then. You know, I was kind of in this other world of of that um, people who were doing uh, like electronics and artwork and exhibits, and so I found that, and I really wanted to be in that world. And like, what so was I, what was an example? Because I'm trying to. So, um, well, I mean, I my friends and I did a project together actually that. Um, was called Photron 2000. We made this robotic photo booth. So you would go in, and there was a robot arm in the back of this photo booth, and it had uh, LEDs at the end of this at the end of this end effector. And um, and so we uh, how to explain this? So th- that those LEDs at the end of this arm were moving around 
underneath an open shutter of a Polaroid camera. So essentially we were drawing with light and an open exposure. So you go into this, this uh, photo booth, you'd see yourself moving around, press a big button, get your picture taken. That picture was then image processed into grayscale levels that we would associate and contours that we would then um, assign to an LED. And then one of the LEDs would light up and draw that that closed contour. Okay. So what would it? So and then the so the shutter of the the Polaroid would open, robot would draw, shutter close, spit out, and you would get your part your portrait drawn in light. So you couldn't fix the remote control. This was much <laughs> But you later. like built a robotic photo booth. It was much later. And what was cool about that? So and also so my friend it was my friend Dan's idea. Um, we worked with this other guy, a uh, friend of ours, Jonathan, who you know did much of the code, and Dan built a lot of the robot. We did it together, and we all kind of clued this whole thing together. We built this cool thing, and um, we the way that we actually decorated the outside on our like we we did two versions. So when they were doing the Frank Gehry building, I noticed there was all this really cool cladding that they were putting around the whole building. So I made friends with one of the guys, and I went up to one of the workers. And I said, "Does it ever fall off?" Can you have scraps? We're building this thing. And well, the guy. What were they putting around the building? It's like this cladding. So, a lot of the Gary buildings have this folded metal that mm-hmm. kind of fits into itself. And mm-hmm. it, um, uh, it gives us kind of like, it looks like scales on a fish or something like that. So, I was like, we need to put that on the outside of our photo booth. It would look sick, right? And it would be like perfect. So, I went to one of the guys and he's like, I got you. I got you covered. You know, come over to this, you know, place. And, you know, back in the construction thing, I was like, okay. So he said, bring the dimensions of your photo booth. I brought the dimensions. He made us two colors, custom cladding from a Frank Gehry building for our photo booth. So we made this, you know, tech art piece, and we clad it in the the actual material that the Frank Gehry building was being made with. So okay, so what year was this? Oh God, two thousand five. Six maybe because five? I feel I feel like then you're sort of you embarking on the path of let's say combining art, computers, robotics, a little bit of comedy, and you and this is the path that you've kind of stayed on. This is like what your company, in a sense, does in a very innovative way, revolving around furniture. Mm-hmm. So, like, what what was the leap from that to this? Uh, so then I just knew that I wanted to you know do. Something in the world that was a combination of design and art and sculpture, and also used all my, you know, technical acumen that I had gotten from my training. Um, and so, you know, part of me was like, I got right after I left school. So I taught for a while at MIT, first of all, um, and then just a uh, random, <laughs> just throw that out there. Yeah, even trying if to make you me feel bad, like I got quit, thrown out of graduate actually, school. Actually, even if you quit, you can they let you teach. So, um, so then. Uh, they so I, I basically you know thought I want to make cool stuff in the world and that's functional and so started off with this one piece and I realized you know this is a sculpture but it really I think the engineer side of me is like it needs to be super functional it's not just sculpture so it's like it can be a table so it's our this levitating table that has all these cubes that levitate with respect to one another uh, and then that just got me thinking of more and more you know different pieces of functional art essentially and then it became okay let's well, functional art because like people use a table, people use a chair, mm-hmm. people use dishes, mm-hmm. um, and then combining 
you know, sort of like technology to it could turn it into art, like something that we didn't quite expect and and make it more usable mm-hmm. in a weird way. Right. And also can make it so, you know, right now we went from all functional art to now um, a broader demographic with our new stuff, which we're doing Kickstarter about uh, next week. And then we're doing, you know, if you think too, where we're going and what we're starting to work on is imagine your chair and your table could call 911 if you're having a heart attack or could keep you from ever having repetitive stress injury or eye strain or back pain. So, so okay, let, let's, let, so the chair with the 911. So I'm sitting in the chair, it could like read, like almost like a pacemaker, my heart uh, rhythms, and yeah. if it's going crazy, it'll it could send do the things, call right. to And it could know, you know, there could also be a camera somewhere where you're sitting to understand what's happening because you can, you can see what your heart rate is also through camera. So you can, um, you know, because we're furniture makers, we have really an interesting perspective that we have many touch points that we can like get redundant feedback yeah. From you, right? And we can also understand use cases on you know many different use cases, and and we have so much information. So essentially, that can be combined with so that real time information could be combined with your um, quantitative, uh, you know, quantified self data that you know is maybe saying, okay, you're this old, and you are you maybe have diabetes, or you're four months pregnant, or you had hip surgery, and all this other stuff, or how active you are, and then come up with a solution that and that could help you. And so I think a lot of the quantified self, um, I guess, like, you know, uh, products, there's a high attenuation rate around. People what do you find mean by out, attenuation? So people find out they're, they're a bad sleeper because they put this thing on their pillow or they're wearing something, and nothing in the world reacts and helps them get to be a better sleeper. So instead, you lie in bed and you fret that you're a bad sleeper and you're not, you know, the world isn't helping you fix that problem necessarily. So people stop using these devices often. And, um, but that wouldn't be the case if the world then said, okay, I just found out you're a bad sleeper. If I'm your bed, I'm going to help you. Or I'm your room and I'm going to change your temperature because I noticed you wake up when this happens. And I'm going to do something with sound and something with light. And I'm also going to maybe shift you in certain ways because I noticed you also are snoring or you might have sleep apnea. Well, it's interesting because this is, this is a little bit related to the AI and intelligence versus consciousness discussion. But there's this idea that for a long time we were humanists. Like I would listen to another human as opposed to being theists. Mm-hmm. Like instead of listening to God telling me I'm sick, mm-hmm. I would listen to a doctor telling me I'm sick. But now we kind of listen to data mm-hmm. more than anything. We've sort of outsourced our decision making to some extent and more and more to data. And and like you say, there's all these touch points with furniture. So people don't think of the connection really because it seems like an odd connection between furniture and what we interact with all day long every day and actually the data to make decisions to improve our lives. Right. And that's a sense, in a sense, the direction your company has been going. Yeah, and so you know, we make fun of uh, often of people who throw around this IoT phrase, Internet of Things, because um, it's become ambiguous. Because it's only a way to brand yourself to make a billion dollars. Exactly. But okay, right? <laughs> um, unless you're actually trying to do it. Um, so, um, but you know, for me, it's those the T's, the things should be the things we already use, not new glowing siloed. Objects that are on you know your desk, but they should be the things that we're already used to using. So like a, a chair, a desk, a table, a bed, a bed like a couch, yeah, a all TV. these things, right? And and furniture has been really, really reluctant to uh, technological advances. 
you know, there's w- not why? a lot. Why? Because they do make artistic de- a- a- advances. They make, they make design advances. Sure, design advances. And you can definitely tell, like, there's the, you know, mid-century modern is very different from nouveau. Is, you know, all these different kinds of... But, um, you know, for some reason, you know, our treadmills are much smarter these days than our, you know, chairs are. And uh, for some reason, it's just very... I think people have a hard time, you know, Getting over the notion of things not being static and big and and structurally sound well, in a way that technology seems to that seems like a very good subvert. reason. But I always think there's a good reason and a real reason. And I think and what you just said was a very good reason why mm. uh, it doesn't change in that way. But I think the real reason is is that most people historically rise up through let's say an art school to design furniture and make a furniture design company are not technologists, mm. and so they get afraid of that. Like oh no, I don't. I don't have that skill that will take years to learn, so they avoid it. But you, fortunately, have that skill and bring it into this design element, and now I've set up this furniture company. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think that's the reason. That's more to me. That sounds, that sounds more like a, a real reason. reason. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, even like this whole sit stand desk phenomenon. You know, so um, you know, everyone now they still it's still not good to stand all day at your desk, right? And people will get uncomfortable and then end up sitting. But if I'm your desk and I'm smart about this and I have all this data and I understand what's happening, I can do things that never let you feel uncomfortable, right? That so that you don't actually by the time you you change it, you're already uncomfortable. The damage is done. But I can know before and and do things with height changes or positioning and encourage you to change and move around so that you actually don't get hurt. So so realistically a what does the kind of home or room of the future look like and b how far away are we because it seems like the technology is all there. Um I think you know in for the medical there's some low hanging fruit medical applications where people who perhaps are you know always confined to a bed or a chair where we can make their their experience more comfortable and actually the effects of sitting so long and, and like that, we could definitely um, put more sensors in to make those experiences better. Um, for mainstream consumers um, to have these desks and chairs, I think we're still, you know, 20 years, probably 15 years, maybe. I don't know, maybe 10. Seems like they're, a long they're time. Gonna start, like- I do. When I said that, I was like, no, I'm, I'm not right. Um, I think, you know, we'll start seeing these things and hopefully I will start making people see these things within the next, you know, five years. And um, for them, you know, to be ubiquitous, I think there's also, you know, massive changes in urbanization now. Urbanization is on an exponential rise. This is having our an effect on how we live and work, right? And this, our spaces are getting smaller. We have to accommodate more people. We have to accommodate more experiences. People want more experience and they're requiring it out of their possessions. Um, and in some ways, Static furniture becomes a, a misappropriation of space, but it also becomes a constraint. And so, if you're if you have a cafe, let's say, and the the um, tables could change, you know, positions, and they could slide up the wall and slide back down the wall and come out. And let's say they're being fed data about, um, you know, traffic patterns that are from consumers. You could say, okay, in the morning we have really high foot traffic. These tables should be up because we're going to make a lot more money and. You know, at four o'clock though, it's really low. We need people to stay and sit and keep buying stuff. Tables can come down, and they can respond to other data sets to be able to then affect. You could even like if you if you feel like too many people are crowding the restaurant, the seats. You can even have like the chair lean forward just a little bit because that demonstrates that people will 
be more likely to exit, you know, yeah. or to finish up. Right. And or, you know, maybe at night we might this might be really um indicative of a a more I can't say that I'm gonna use this, but like a disruptive and I really, really am caveating that word because I use it sparingly. Um, uh, notion of how we use space, right? Our approach to space, which you know, things might not. A cafe might not always be, have a dedicated space. It might just have a dedicated time that it's that. You know, a space might be like. I'm this. I'm a cafe from this hour to this hour, and I'm a yoga studio from this hour to this hour. And I think this or, is important in our, you know, like right now everybody kind of stays home and goes online, and their kind of virtual spaces are where mm-hmm. they spend time. And I think a lot of stores are dealing with the fact that they are no longer a space that people go to, and kind of figuring out innovative uses for space is a tech- technology or a way of thinking that has to be done. Right. right. So it seems like you're doing that. So so now t- tell tell me about your Kickstarter. So it's kind of an, an introduction to your to your products. Yeah. So uh, we're doing Kickstarter launches on the twenty eighth, and um, basically we're selling our new uh, chair, which is a chair that can uh, kind of flatten down and with a pull of a string, and then unfurls to a ergonomic chair when uh, when it's open and it's lightweight and portable and can be customized. Why is it portable? Uh, it's like light, I can just yeah, carry it? Yeah, you can carry it around. Like a yoga mat or something? A little, yeah, kind of, not quite like a yoga mat. It doesn't mm-hmm. totally roll up. Though the, the timbre, which is the slatted seat surface, that does. But uh, And you can swap that out so you can have different designs, different woods and customize them. And it's, a, um, you know, it's a new kind of transforming chair. So again, like... Um, uh, again, just to kind of like round out like your your totally odd career, you went from no astronaut to HR at Comedy Central to you know managing artists to working for Al Franken to being a roboticist, working for an architect, and somehow it, I feel like it all merged together to what you're doing now. You're build and now you're an entrepreneur. You're building this company mm-hmm. that sells kind of this weird technologically designed. Furniture. Yeah. So almost like you've been doing a day of the day. Well, I'm going to just apply to MIT and I'm just going to start a company and sell stuff nobody's ever sold before in history. And uh, I just want to add, it's been a dare of the day that got you back here because I felt so bad about losing your prior podcast and I was afraid to call you. So I did a dare of the day, which is just texting you out of the blue and saying you have to come back on. And it was that's a scary thing for me to, 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 yeah, to come back on my podcast. So I super appreciate it. Tell me where or tell everybody where they can find you, your furniture, your Kickstarter and anything else. And, and our dare of the day, which our dare of the year, is at some point we're going to do stand up comedy together yes, somewhere. We are. Maybe around chatbots, right? Or something. Yeah, we, we were talking about yeah, chatbots earlier. We were talking about that. Um, so, Rock, Paper, Robot is the name of the company and will be on Kickstarter on February 28th for the Ollie chair, which is a um, transformable chair. And, and if somebody did want to start, if someone were saying to themselves, Okay, I really do want to start getting out of my comfort zone more and more. What would be the first way they can start thinking about thinking about how they can do a dare of the day? Maybe I should just give like a gateway dare. Give me a gateway dare. <laughs> um, I'm going to do it. Okay. Pour some coffee on your shirt and just go out in the world. That's a great one. I'm going to t- and and wait. Ketchup, coffee, you can do whatever, you know. What what if you can can you take it up a notch? Like you have to go to something important. Because if I'm just walking down, the, if I'm just getting this is my a newspaper, gateway one, right? We're, we don't want to like 
gotta start with something just like just go out the door right. and walk down the street. Know that you just don't, you know. All right, that's number one. But I want people to tweet me nine more. <laughs> I I want a dare of the day every day, and I'm gonna start doing it. So thanks, Jessica Banks from Comma Rock Paper Robot, which is your comma right now until my, your next one. My current comma, my your current CC. comma. Yeah. And thanks so much for coming for doing a repeat podcast with me. I'm so glad that I did. This has been really fun. Thanks. I missed you. Excellent. Me too. <laughs> For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for the James Altucher show and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.